We interrupt this program to bring you the utility player's classified results. Red Bull Leipzig 2, Hoffenheim 0. Werner Bremen 5, Paderborn 1. Adelaide Crows 35, Port Adelaide 110. Brisbane Broncos 18, Manly Sea Eagles 20. Roy McElroy 6 under par, tied 32nd. We are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. So a bit of a mixed bag this week of the classified results, Rory, um, but before we get into that, very excited to announce we have our first ever guest on, uh, Scotland and Edinburgh hooker Stuart McAnally will be joining us later in the show, uh, but before we get to that, thoughts on this weekend's sport? Yeah, we had... Some very good results and some extremely poor results, I think, is the way to put it. I, th- I think so. I think we, we started with the, with the German football. I think um, actually the bigger result for you and your Werner Brennan team this year was the late winner from Dortmund, yeah. uh, which gives you gives you a slimmer hope or a much better hope of, of staying up this year. Yeah, for sure. I think this Saturday's watching was interesting because Bremen went up early and kind of dominated the game. And you could one of those ones where you could tell early that Bremen were likely to get the points. So then we were just looking for Dortmund to win and make our win so much that more meaningful. And you'd have expected Dortmund to actually walk it, but they they certainly made it difficult for themselves. And it wasn't for the ever-impressive Haaland scoring basically the last header of the game, which really kind of cemented it. it was an excellent three points for us. And I believe we are now level in third bottom, which gives us a much more of a fighting chance of staying up than we were at the start of football return from lockdown. Yeah, it's now uh, Raymond and uh, Dusseldorf are both on 28 points. So it's all down to goal difference. Only one goal in it as well. So you're, you're giving yourself a fighting chance. Unfortunately, though, my Adelaide Crows got well and truly spanked <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, in the battle for Adelaide in the Australian Roos football. Yeah, so what happened there, Ali? Because I thought the Crows were meant to be a proud AFL franchise. And yet... It's a rebuild. It's, it's a, a rebuild. It's a rebuild. We made, we made the grand final in 2017. It's, it's a young team, but I say I, I got up and watched it Saturday morning, and we, we scored the first two goals. and uh, And I thought, oh, here we go, because the Port side are very good this year. But I think ten unanswered goals, and uh, <laughs> I, I didn't even make it to, to three quarter time before I stopped watching. Unfortunately, I, I, I gave up, and you know that was that was a fair spanking, but a bit more heartbreak for you and your Broncos. I know, I know. When we were 18 nil up in the first half, it was all looking plain sailing and looking like there was absolutely no rust following the break of sport. But fair play to the Manly Seagulls. They got that try before half-time and then came out really, really fast in the second half, hit us with two quick tries, which changed the game. And then we gave it our all in our last 10 minutes, been camped on their line, but some stern defence, unfortunately, meant we just fell short there. Um, you know, While we're talking about Australian Rugby League, it's the Parramatta Eels, I see, are still staying 100% on top, on top of the table. Yeah. Is there a worse name for a sports team than the Eels? I know. You, you look around the world and you, you see 
you know, the Broncos and the Vikings and the Lions and the whatever it might be, inspiring fear and, and pride or whatever, the Knights, whatever it is. And then you come up and you play against the Parramatta Eels. <laughs> well, I mean, being at risk of offending some people, but I know if you speak to someone from Sydney and you tell them that you're from Parramatta, they probably have the same reaction as when they hear a team is called the Eels. So maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's just fitting for how people from Sydney view people from Parramatta. Yeah, well, we won't, we won't get into the politics of, <laughs> uh, of, of New South Wales uh, tribal culture, but it just stands out to me. But clearly it makes no difference because they're, they're top of the table and, and still got 100% record. In the PGA, Rory McIlroy, your man Rory, going into the last day, uh, let himself down again. He was in a really good position, I thought, going into the last day. Kind of two or three shots. I think it was three shots back. No, it was less than that, I think. It was less than that. It was yeah. two shots back. And like a few groups in the end which i think on the last day is almost like an ideal position to make a move because you're kind of just that bit far enough out to make your move slightly below the kind of pressure of the very final group of the last day on a sunday so i think he was in a good position but had a pretty i mean the bogey or double bogey the first which is never gonna set you up for a good round and it kind of capitulated from there unfortunately for rory yeah end up shooting four over on the last day and especially the first at colonial is such an important hole because it's only one of two par fives um and and making making par on that uh, on any given day is is dropping a shot um, yeah. for 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 those players. So so when you make bogey or double, I can't remember what it was. You know you're giving away at least two, if not three shots. And yeah. As good as Rory is, and you know this is a bit of a trend we saw from him before before we went into the hiatus of sport where he was playing brilliantly. He's the number one golfer in the world. We know how good he is, but some last round jitters have, have got the better of him on, on more than one occasion this season. Well, I think I think with Rory, it actually extends further than this season I think look Roy is a fabulous golfer and he will be remembered very highly for the amazing things he's achieved but you do feel he's one of those players that actually has almost underachieved given his talent there's been a lot of majors where he's been there and thereabouts and he's had a bad round or a bad nine holes or not maybe had like the ruthless streak that you would have seen from someone like Tiger in his heyday which has actually caused him to not it sounds mad saying it because he is so successful, but to not win as many tournaments as he actually maybe should have done. Well, the eventual winner was was Daniel Berger. Uh, he he won it uh, in a in an extra hole. Uh, it went to an extra hole, and uh, and he won the playoff. But you know, despite Rory's uh, slip in the last rounds and and going to an extra hole, uh, the fact there was no fans. What stood out to me this week, and I don't know if you saw it, Rory Bryson DeChambeau, he is trying to have a club, a ball speed sorry, of 200 miles an hour when he's driving. 200 miles an hour. So to put that into context, the average in 2019 on the PJ Tour was 167 miles an hour. Last year, Bryson DeChambeau's average was 175 miles an hour, and that was 42nd on the PJ Tour. He is trying to gain 25 miles an hour in ball speed. That, and if anyone who watched the golf this weekend will see the muscle and the sheer size that he has put on is incredible, and people who follow golf know you know what a clever man he is. You know he's got he's he's a, he's a scientist by nature. He's got a master in, in quantum physics or something like that, and he's identified and done all the science that he needs to to know what's to be successful, and that is hitting the ball long. So, my question to you is: Is hitting the ball long now too much of an advantage? Well, I think first of all, just commenting on Bryson, I think it is absolutely ridiculous how he has developed his game over the past 12 months, certainly with, as you mentioned, the size that he now is. But also, I don't think we should underestimate how much 25 miles an hour extra is. 
I mean, they're talking on commentary and they were saying they were saying that if you can get it up five miles an hour as a professional golfer, you think that's a big achievement. So 25 miles an hour is just astonishing. But it certainly does seem in terms of whether hitting the ball long is almost too much of an advantage. I think this is where you've got to differentiate, I think, for me personally at times, between golf and American golf in other parts of the world. Because in a lot of these American courses, it seems to be the case that if you can get the ball an extra 40, 50, 60 yards on your opponent, even if you are not hitting as many fairways, you will score better because when you're hitting wedges and nine irons out that rough, you can still be pretty aggressive and still get it pretty close. It feels like there's softer greens. It feels like at times the rough isn't as punishing as you might get on like a Scottish links. What I would find would be interesting if you see these players who are building their game on hitting the ball ridiculous lengths, but maybe not with the quite same accuracy as when they come to the Open, when they come to a windy Carnoustie or St Andrews when it really when it really howls or even some of the places you play in Europe as well. Some of these places you play in Scandinavia with tough, rough and high wind, whether that same format would be as successful. I think when you play kind of links golf courses or kind of un-American style golf courses, you have to think about the game slightly differently at times. It tests you in different ways. It's an interesting point you make comparing the PGA Tour to, to, to other golf players around the world. I think it's something that Tommy Fleetwood uh, mentioned when Paul Azinger, uh, one of the commentators over the PGA Tour, commented about Tommy not winning on the PGA Tour and, and the PGA Tour being, a, you know, depending how how you read his comments, a superior tour to the European Tour. You know, when Tommy was asked about it, he very clearly said, look, it's not superior. They're just different styles of golf. It's almost a different game. And winning, you know, you have to win in different ways. If you brought upon the P- if you brought on the PGA Tour, and we don't see a huge amount of this, and it's something I'd like to see more is PGA Tour stars going and playing in Europe more. Uh, you know, money speaks, and the money that the PGA Tour has is it's very difficult to to match that. But what the European Tour is doing with their Rolex series is hopefully going to do something uh, to help match that to make the prize money more lucrative. But one thing. I, just think about that length element as you rightly said you know it's almost like yes these guys are all amazingly skillful you know they're all you know and we're talking about the top one percent here but taking that into account is that you know skill you know the skill and the straight hitting is almost becoming less and less relevant and it doesn't matter how far you hit it you know someone like phil Mickelson, he's got away with it for years you know him or he the way he plays off the tee you know puts you know, parts of the course that I'm used to seeing, not before, <laughs> not professional golfers, but the skill he has. But, you know, driving accuracy and accuracy off the tee seems to be becoming less and less redundant. And then you go and talk about the argument about the, the kit, you know, the, the equipment that's being used. And, and golf's a unique sport in that all the equipment that's being used is completely chosen by the athletes themselves, by the golfers themselves. And I was thinking about this over the weekend. It's the only sport that I can think of where there isn't a standardized, this is obviously ball sport, standardized ball being used, where it is regulated and everyone has the same playing field. Now, people might say, well, the clubs are more relevant than the ball being hit, etc. And that might be the case. But I look around football, I look around rugby, I look around cricket, I look around whatever it might be, you know, snooker, any sport with a ball, is there's a standardized set of balls that are given to the athletes at the start of a game and they either choose it in lights of cricket, they might pick out a box or whatever else, and they still may use different boots and bats and what have you. In golf, why is there not that standardized ball? Why, why, why can we not make a ball which potentially might not fly as far, but makes takes potentially some of the length out of it, and it's not just becoming a power hitting competition? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and that is a way I'd never thought about it before. And I think they were having an interesting conversation on the commentary for the golf at the weekend, and they were talking about how the way the equipment is set up 
is actually to benefit the professionals and actually us amateurs get a lot less benefit out of modern technology than the professionals do, which almost seems like that's the wrong way around. So professional golfers are getting more out of the equipment than the amateurs, which just makes the professionals better and the amateurs worse and the amateurs less likely to take up the game. So actually, whether it is a ball or whether it's a change of clubs, you think there's got to be something that makes the game harder for the professionals and maybe makes them forced to be more accurate and think more about course management rather than just bombing out their 350 and seeing where you end up. But then at the same time, encouraging amateurs to take up the game because golf is it's probably one of the hardest sports to just pick up and play because there is such a technique to it that you have to kind of craft and learn over time. You can't. It's very hard to just go and play golf for the first time ever and really enjoy it. So if you can find a way to make it easier for amateurs so they enjoy it more and then harder professionals so that it can actually be more down to the professional skill rather than the professional's distance, I think that sounds like it'd be an improvement. Yeah, and, and the other thing you touched the amateurs and and the and the professionals and the differences, you know, the course setup. You know, you talked about playing, talking about play play around the course. You know, do, do does the PGA Tour in particular, or or the uh, European Tour, or whatever it might be, or the RNA, you know, do we need to start looking at the the way these courses are set up? You know, do we need to start getting you know increased bunkers in areas? Uh, you know, taking tees back, all these basic things that they will be talking about, but but for me. A winning score, you know, is something I like to see. If maybe if you just make it double digits under mm-hmm. par, you know, sort of, you make it eight under par, nine under par, ten under par, that's winning score. Agreed. I've always found, to be honest, I always found the PGA Tour at times a little bit boring because birdies are just so like expected now, and players are winning eighteen, twenty, sometimes twenty-five under, and I think that, like I said, takes a lot of the charm and a lot of the challenge away from golf. A slightly different part of the world. We we saw, as we alluded to last week, we saw sport being played in front of a live audience in the stands again uh, this week down in in uh, New Zealand, which was a fantastic to see. We had the start of the Super Rugby Ayatira, Ayatora, Ayatoa, Ayatoa. My my Maori needs a little bit of a no. Yeah, same. I'm I'm very much the same. I'm not up to speed with my Maori yet but but it was it, it was you know incredible to watch um that coming back in and actually seeing real atmosphere again um and it's what we come to love and the magic of sport however what something that stood out for me Rory is there was a changing of the rules and there was a, a attempt to try different rules um a lot of that you know around the the breakdown and, and some stuff about red cards but what I found incredible was the amount of penalties that were conceded in around the breakdown from coming in from the side, being off your feet, uh, etc., skyrocketed. For me, I think it's a good thing. For me, you know, and this may be a jealousy thing, is for years people talked about Richie McCaw being the best cheat in the game. You know, he played right on that line, right on that line, and he would find himself, you know, slightly the wrong position, coming in from slightly the wrong angle, everything else. But he did it so brilliantly, add that to all his skill, you know, he always gained an advantage. And that used to frustrate me. It used to frustrate me. I used to find it really annoying that people who could just get the right side of that line, you know, would get away with it. And I think these new rules will will take away some of that. I am going to disagree. My my view of policing the breakdown has always been, because the breakdown is such a complex art and it's such a complex form and there's so many like bodies and factors that dominate like ruck time in rugby i think that if you looked at every single ruck i reckon eight to nine out of ten of them you could find something to penalize them for if you looked hard enough and i think if you become too strict or too policing of that area you're just going to end up 
with the game stagnating, you're going to be blowing up every minute, minute and a half, and the game's not going to go anywhere. And I would say that for me, my my interpretation of policing the breakdown is you let the game play on unless a team has gained an unfair advantage or slowed the game down from their acts, because otherwise it becomes too it becomes too frequently that you're blowing your whistle all the time because it is so difficult to stay on your feet every second, not drop a hand to the ground, not drop a shoulder to the ground. You can clear someone out, you can take them off your feet and actually they end up in a position where you could penalise them for, but it's just the nature of that collision. So I think you've got to be a little bit more open-minded at the breakdown and just let the game play and let the game flow and talk to the players. And if you say, right, hands off, they take the hands off, that's fine. And you actually don't, you don't blow up all the time because you just stop the flow of the game. And rugby is a game where you like to see long phases. You like to see a nice flow. And I think that allowing the breakdown to develop and being a little bit more lenient to players, as long as they're not gaining an unfair advantage, will allow rugby to be more enjoyable to watch for the spectator and ultimately a more successful sport. But you've just said there that unless it's an unfair advantage, surely by the very nature of if you bend the rules, if you break the rules, you are gaining an unfair advantage. The, the rules there for reason. Now, yes, I get that there might be more penalties than are, than are ideal to start with when they're implementing these rules. The, the referees, the officials, the players, they're going to have to get used to them. There's going to be teething problems. But if we look, you know, how many months down the line, and players and officials are used to it. Are we not going to see a clearer, more fair, contested contest? Because, you know, when I first started with rugby, you know, the ruck was a contest. I'd say 19 times out of 20 now, the ruck isn't a contest because people are able to come in, for, you know, virtually from 45, 50 degrees and claim they're coming in behind the back foot. Now, maybe nitpicking and things like that, but I want to see that to be a contest. I want it to see actual having an ability for, for the defenders to, to have more of an opportunity to win the balls back. And and if, if players are, are bending the rules to not allow that to happen, then the contest is lost. I mean, I guess two things. I think by... Breaking the rules a lot of the time of the breakdown, you aren't getting an advantage because a lot of the time people will drop a knee or put hands to the ground first, not to gain an advantage, but because of the physical and the and the nature of being in that close, compact environment, your actually body is forced to do those things to protect itself and to stay in that environment and actually to be in a to be in a legal position. Sometimes you might have to drop a knee or drop a hand or etc. So I don't think you always do get an advantage for not following the letter of the law 100%. And also, I think that I've certainly had no issue with competition at the breakdown at all in rugby. I think the breakdown is one of the areas that is still highly competitive and highly interesting. And it's the art of where you can get that advantage over the opposition. And I think that I certainly haven't seen in recent years, watching Six Nations, watching the last World Cup, I haven't seen that teams have been obviously gaining an unfair advantage with the rules as they are. So I don't think they are broken, so I don't think they need to be fixed. And actually, they're just allowing for a much more flowing and a much freer game. Well, however the rules went, we, we certainly saw a, an incredible first game back with, with two drop goals um, from both teams. Uh, I can't remember who, who, who the first game was. The... So it was the Highlanders versus the Chiefs. The Highlanders had two yellow cards and still managed to stay in the game. Actually managed to come out of one of the periods with uh, 40 men, seven points up. But the Chiefs thought they'd won it with a 
drop goal with about five minutes to go, only for the Highlanders to respond with a 40-yard drop goal of their own. Yeah, and and, and the fact the game was down in Dunedin, uh, and it was a home game for Highlanders, and, and anyone who's been to the, uh, the stadium down in Dunedin, there's, there's one section of the ground at the end of the stand which is called the zoo, uh, and, <laughs> uh, and and that's because the the animal behaviour that, that, that the locals get up to. <laughs> Another thing, big story that came out to me, but it's not a big story that a lot of people miss, but I sort of saw in The Guardian this week, was an, uh, an article by um, Sean Ingle looking at football transfers and looking at the possibility that you and me, Rory, might still have an opportunity to make our championship manager careers a possibility in real life. <laughs> um, there has been an, a, an app or an online platform created where... Football clubs from around the world, there's been 250 clubs from five continents, including 13 Premier League teams, essentially log into this app. And there is a whole raft of 10-minute conversational window boxes. And in that, any club can log in. And in those 10-minute slots can essentially have transfer talks between whatever club is on that particular 10-minute slot. And you can see what players are available. You can talk about buying. You can talk about loaning. You can talk about anything to do with this stuff. And none of this is done with an agent in sight. I have very mixed views. Same. I can't get my head around this. I can't decide whether I like this or loathe this. So for me, agents are becoming more and more integral in professional sport. But certainly in football, they're going too far. FIFA reported that in 2019, there was a half a billion, I don't know if it was pounds or dollars, that were paid in agents' fees. Okay, And how, how frustrated are we as fans that we see every transfer window What's holding it up is an agent, you know, not being happy with only getting four million instead of five million. You know, the Paul Pogba deal, it was remarkable what his agent got. So anything that removes a clutter of that, and when we've got Jim White and deadline day, you know, <laughs> sort of first mentioning a potential transfer and then it go it goes through seven hours later. Yeah. You know, even though everyone knows it's gonna happen. You know, we're sick of that. What I also don't like is how this potentially would move to players removing the agent players themselves potentially losing a little bit of power and just becoming more commodities and bargaining chips for clubs to start moving around because the player you know ultimately is the one performing and if the player it's not for a club to decide if a player is happy in his scenario at a, at a club you know it's not for a player to de- a club to decide a player's feelings on it so so for example two of the premier league clubs were, were arsenal and, and everton you know, this week about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has been talked about his future. So, so just say that Everton said, we have got £95 million for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And they went on this app and they said, Arsenal, here's £95 million. Who's to say, why should Arsenal make any decision on what is best for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang? You know, why make that deal without involving either the player or obviously the player's agent? Yeah, I think there's a lot of elements to this. I, I do agree with you that I think in my experience of lots of different industries, agents and the power agents have now is almost overkill and actually counterproductive for a lot of parties. And it feels a lot of time actually the agent and maybe the person the agent's representing is the only one really benefiting from that experience. So to remove them from the conversation a bit could certainly be a bonus. And I guess ease of transfers for clubs and allowing clubs to be more efficient is something that we should take in as potentially a good thing. But I'm I'm similar to you in the fact that I don't like the way football's going. I don't like how easy and frequently players move around now. I don't like that 
Pep Guardiola can come into a new site, a new club, and say, this is the brand of football I'm going to play. If the players here don't fit the mould, I'm going to sell them and buy someone new. Because I think that takes away from the art of managing, because the art of managing should be getting the best out of the players you have, rather than just buying the players to fit your style. But I also think it kind of takes away from like almost like the passion of having like a club and a group of players that you support if the players that you love are turning over every three, four years. Like, I don't know, you look back in football and you look at like the Steven Gerrards and the Lampards and Tony Adams, these players that have been at their clubs for long times and they're cult heroes because they have dedicated their life to one club and people love them for that. And even like in the modern age now, other than someone like Messi, you can't really think of many examples. Like someone like Ronaldo, one of the best players in the world. How many different clubs has he played for? And you lose the kind of soul of having like that one club man, that one club player who kind of committed to a club like you would at an amateur level. You have your club and you play with them no matter what. And I, I personally would like to see more loyalty in football from players and from managers and keeping players at clubs longer. And this sounds like it's just facilitating the opposite, as you said, turning players into commodities, which on the surface, I'm not sure I agree with. I mean, one of the big things as, as a young a young boy following football is that I remember AC Milan retiring the number three for Paolo Maldini, unless one of his you know direct family members' descendants was then to ever play for AC Milan, they could then have the number three. And that was such a powerful thing. I thought that was really cool, you know, that someone who's committed to that. I mean, that's not going to happen. No. You know, that's not, I mean, I, I kind of thought when Steven Gerrard move on, would Liverpool do it? You know, potentially something like that. And but that, as you say, that's just not going to happen anymore. That that loyalty is dead, and it's it's really it's really upsetting to see. And and it's often why you know I don't understand, and I'm guilty of it. You know, whether we like it or not, people aren't as attracted to international football as they are club football anymore. But the art of managing international football or international sport for me is a much harder art form mm-hmm. because you are provided with the players you have and then you have to come up with a tactic with a system with a whatever else to get the best out of whatever qualities those players have you can't it's not a case of well this is my system as you said i'm going to get rid of these players and bring someone else in because they have certain qualities because you know then you have people following certain managers around international sport is you know these are the these these are the players I have, these are the tools they've got, this is then how I'm going to have to play to get the best out of them to make them successful. And that is the art of coaching. That is the art of management. That is the art of team building. It's, 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 it's fitting around the qualities you have, not just, as you say, playing championship manager, competing like a computer screen, and just seeing you know, stats on a sheet and going, well, this is what I want to bring in. You know? and, and I wonder how far it goes before before it literally is just completely computerized, you know, and, and we, it started with Moneyball. You know, everyone's seen the, the money, if you've seen Moneyball with, with Brad Pitt and well, Major League Baseball, you know, it was a big swing in American sport. And you just wonder how much, you know, of sports is, is done on a computer screen now behind the scenes rather than actually on the pitch. Well, there's obviously lots of other things going on in the world of sport this week. Here's a bit of a catch up of some of the other highlights. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. First up, you'll have all seen that the Premier League is starting back this week. Of course, all the conversation is going to be about Liverpool. When will Liverpool finally win the league? And yes, we know Liverpool fans are going to win the league, so please stop reminding us. 
Secondly, we saw uh, a big news in the world of boxing this week. British fans are finally getting their fight. Anthony Joshua taking on Tyson Fury. The financial terms have been agreed 2021. Just the hurdle is all of Devontae Wilder to get out of the way. Devontae, get out of the way. You had your chance. You blew it. Let's have the British fight we all want. In Scottish football, we have seen that Hearts are officially going to get relegated. It's been agreed by the clubs that they're going to stick with the 12-10-10 league structure for next year, which means that the only thing that Anbudge can do now is beg that the lawyers can keep Hearts in the SPL. And a big week in racing this week at Royal Ascot. Uh, there won't be any of the pomp and circumstance. There'll be no top hat in sight and there'll be no sight of the Queen for the first time in her 68-year reign. But the Coronation Stakes will still be taking place on Saturday. And potentially my favourite or the story in sport that has made me smile the most is the news that Marcus Rashford has spent lockdown raising £20 million for provision of school meals for children from a lower social economic backgrounds. On top of this, he's also wrote an open letter to the government encouraging that they make a U-turn on their decision to cancel school meals. And I love this because it just shows that the younger generation of footballers aren't all just egotistical Instagram stars, which we sometimes think, but they actually have some sensibility and a lovely charitable edge to them. And finally, we have our Coppa Italia finalists, where we didn't see either of our Milan teams make it to the final, as we talked about last week. And we've got a Juventus-Napoli final. Uh, opportunity for Cristiano Ronaldo to try and continue his successful start in Turin uh, as he makes it to a final, as he looks to make his first ever double in Italian football. We're delighted this week as our first guest to have one of the most recognisable faces in Scottish rugby. Stuart McAnally received 37 caps for Scotland. Uh, is the leading all-time try scorer as a hooker with seven tries. Been involved in both the seven circuit, played Scotland Day, and is uh, delighted to join us today. Stuart, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. It's, uh, it was nice to hear that I'm, I didn't actually realise I was one of the top try scoring hookers. It was never a... I think I never thought I'd um, hear, especially when I was growing up in a different position. Uh, I used to play back row. If you told me I was one of the top try scoring hookers, I don't know if I'd believed you, but that's quite a cool stat. There you go. Well, I'm glad we can be informative. Uh, <laughs> you're meant to be telling us stuff, not the other way around. I know. <laughs> well, there we go. We'll um, see how this goes. Yeah. So, how's how's obviously lockdown been for you and and uh, everything as a professional rugby player? What's what's that look like from your end? Yeah, on the whole, it's been quite good. Uh, I've kind of, if I look back at it, I've sort of gone through three different phases of it. At the start, I really enjoyed it. I um, quite enjoyed the being a bit different. And when you play rugby for a living, it's it, you know a lot of it is you know you wake up on we we train sort of sun, most Sundays at Edinburgh. So so you get up on a Sunday, you go in, do your training, you come home. Mondays your big big day, big sessions, and then Tuesdays off. Wednesday train Thursday team run Friday play and you get into a very nice routine and I, I quite like the, the fact that our weeks are quite similar and you know exactly what's coming but yeah if I'm honest I really enjoyed um, the start of lockdown because I got to do some things I wanted to do and get some stuff done around the house uh, it was quite naive and I, I think I thought uh, this isn't going to go on that long uh, I'll just start hammering some jobs around the house while I can um, and I probably did too much at the start and, and maybe burned myself out a little. I uh, got a lot of jobs done, I did a lot, I kept, kept my training up, I'm in quite a fortunate position that I've got uh, a gym in the garage so I've managed to maintain some of my weight training and, and fitness and what you like but I probably went a bit hard at the start so I, I kind of hit a bit of a slump halfway through maybe sort of six weeks in doing very sort of <laughs> lacking motivation for anything uh, whether that was training or even even going outside for a walk it was um, yeah, I just I definitely was in a bit of a dark place for 
for a week or so. But it's funny, I like I'm always one for sort of speaking up when you're feeling a bit rubbish. So I did actually just picked up the phone, phoned a few boys, and everyone was in the same boat. I think everyone had that bit of slump where England were getting out of their lockdown and and, and we weren't, and that was a bit of a um, you know we just didn't know what was what was coming next. So everyone was having a bit of a slump. But the big turning point for me was when the golf courses opened again. So I uh, managed to get back on the course the last couple of weeks. I've played a lot. I really enjoy my golf. So that's been great sort of for the mental side of it, getting out and, and getting exercise a slightly different way rather than, you know, sitting on a water bike or, or doing pitch runs. So Well, I can, I can certainly relate to that. I was very excited to get back on the golf course over the last few weeks. You mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned there that you kind of, when you were finding things difficult, you were able to pick up the phone and talk to a few of the other boys. But I guess because a rugby environment is like a really strong team environment, an environment that kind of creates a lot of connection between players and between individuals. But obviously with lockdown, the ability to communicate has been made much more difficult because we can't see people. And I was just wondering kind of how amongst the team and amongst your players, you've been able to keep up those channels of communications and you've been able to chat to each other when you said you've been having difficult times or struggling with things, etc. Yeah, I think a lot of it um, is, is just sort of individual and the boys are sort of, uh, is, is, we're a really you know, close group of players, but everyone's sort of got their, their group of pals within that that they're really close with and they'll go for coffees with. And a lot of the boys game, which uh, I give them a lot of stick about because some of them can spend up to sort of six, seven hours a day on it. But you know what? I think it's, it's good that on that side of it, they are speaking to each other every day. Uh, I'm not one of the gamers, but the guys that do game are not we actually get a lot of interaction with each other so I think it's actually been great for them but yeah and I think we, we tried it at the start we, we sort of had zooms sort of whole group zooms sort of every week every Friday we jump on and, and just sort of chew the fat a bit but um, as <laughs> I think again that was when we were sort of thinking it might be a sort of four or five week thing um, so that that's that carried on for a few a few months but then um, you know it's sort of boys are now just uh, sticking to their own own ways of doing it I think um, I'm, I'm not one big on, on sort of forcing forcing fun if you like I've sort of been through that with, with teams in the past and it's uh, I sort of feel that boys will boys will reach out when they want to reach out and, and speak to each other and uh, one thing we've done uh, every every Tuesday night we have a, a there's a few of us that jump on the poker group so uh, we've got a game of poker we've all signed up to poker stars and um and some of us, uh, you know, we sort of get on Zoom at the same time. So it's quite a good way to have some crack and also just uh, play a bit of poker as well. So, I mean, everyone will have their ways, whether it's, you know, gaming or, or playing poker. Now you're allowed to, to play golf again. It's good. So I was I was going to ask you if you'd, if you'd been suckered into getting Call of Duty yet, because everyone I seem to speak to, that, that seems to be the way to stay connected. Um, uh, more importantly, though, how many golf balls have you lost? Because my first round, I lost seven in, 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 about, in about 11 holes. And I will say it was at Gullen, so the rough's a little bit thicker this time of year, but I'm trying to find if anyone managed to lose more than seven balls on their first round. Well, yeah, no, you're, you're holding the record there, Ali. I have not hit that many. But today, actually, I actually just got back from playing with Grant Gilchrist. And um, before I even hit my second shot on the first hole I was already onto my third ball first two first <laughs> ball was a was a hook, hook into the trees on the left right forget that happened start again and then uh, exactly the same for the next one a bit optimistic thinking I would find it couldn't find it <laughs> then before I knew it, I was playing my fifth um, into the green and obviously I went one down that hole to Gilsco yeah. but <laughs> managed to turn it around thankfully but yeah no that was uh, I started off of, uh, <laughs> my wife got me these Pro V1 golf balls from my Christmas last uh, last Christmas so <laughs> first two balls were two Pro V1 straight into the trees so next out came the, the Dunlop and the, yeah, the Pinnacles so. I find when I turn to the Dunlops and the Pinnacles I suddenly play much better yeah I do find that you do, you do relax a bit when you, you're not as fussed about losing them. You tend to play better, don't you? 
who's who's out of interest who's the is it out of the sort of either the Edinburgh or, or rugby setup? You know, I imagine all in your way on tour or, or some downtime. There's a lot of golf. Is there any sort of real, you know, I don't really care about who the best golfer is. What I know is who's the best, who's the biggest bandit? Who's just that? Everyone's got a mate who just refuses to tell anyone they're any good and just a complete bandit. Is there one of them in the <laughs> sort of circuit? Um, who would that be? Um... And, and if you don't, if you can't come up with the name, Stuart, it's you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think I think you may be I think you may be right. As we played uh, we played the other day was someone in a, I mean I don't have a handicap. I would always say I'm off about sort of fourteen or something like that. And I played and I ended up playing really well. So I got called an absolute shark on uh, the last Monday I played because I was playing with someone who was off four. And uh, so he gave me uh, we just played nine holes, so he gave me five shots. Ended up smashing him. So uh, yeah, I think he was. <laughs> you know, I think you might be right. That age old kind of thinking one is probably me. Probably right. Probably yourself. Um, you, just a, how weird do you find it being called Stuart? Is, do you only get called Stuart on a Sunday or when you're in trouble with your mother? Because obviously in, in rugby circles now, you know, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to go to Murrayfields and I'll be sitting, you know, in a stand and, and you'll come on or you'll be given the ball or make a tackle and people are shouting, come on Rambo. So are you, you know, Rambo is obviously a name that you sort of live by now. You know, are you, are you find it weird when you get called Stuart? Is only certain times and, and where did Rambo come from in the first place? Yeah, so just to answer your first question, yeah, I do find it strange now. I obviously still react to it because it's still my name, but there's not many that, that call me Stuart, and if they do, it's sort of very much a, a tongue-in-cheek, you know, Stuart. Or um, <laughs> a lot of time, new a lot a lot of time, new coaches will start with Stuart. Uh, my when Cocker's first came to Edinburgh, I was I was Stuart, but then you know before I knew, it, I was Rambo, and um, yeah, I think there's been variations of actually Rams is something that I get called it now. It's a bit of a a shortened version of the nickname, but. Um, it came from school. So when I was at school, um, one of the coaches there thought, I, I think it was, um, it was Mr. McCallum at, at George Watson's College. He gave me the nickname because there was a footballer, uh, Alan McAnally, who was called Rambo. He played for Hearts many years ago. And he had the nickname Rambo. And obviously, because my surname is McAnally, he thought it'd be hilarious to call me Rambo for a few, <laughs> a few sessions. Um, and it just completely stuck. I, mean, I don't know why or, or how, but it did. It just stuck. And then it seemed to follow me in rugby as well, which I found bizarre because I was the only one from my year group who went and played, you know, Edinburgh under 16s, under 18s and all that. So it wasn't like, you know, there's a few of us from Watson that went and the name followed me. It just kind of, I don't I honestly, I don't know how it followed me, but it did. And um yeah, it's just uh, all it's kind of just what I've been known by for the last sort of ten years now plus. So, um, ach, I mean, there's worse, there's worse nicknames to have, and unfortunately, there's not a great story that goes with it. Well, uh, was, I'm, I'm hugely disappointed. I was waiting for some yeah. sort of horrendous fancy dress, you know, thing you're involved yeah. with those at school no, right. or afterwards. I, I always, <laughs> uh, there's pictures uh, hidden on someone's to... Nokia disposable <laughs> camera or phone or something somewhere. Well, maybe that is the real story, and I'm just not—I'm just not telling that here because we're on a live podcast. But no, I always say I need to think of a better story for when people actually ask me. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's sometimes the the weirdest stories or the the most nothing stories are the ones that stick. But um, yeah, you talked about playing at school, but obviously uh, it's quite not common, not common knowledge that when you were at school and at the start of your career, you started out as a back rower, and then kind of as your professional career got going, you then moved moved into hooker, moved into the front row. I was just wondering about that process, about what was the kind of most difficult part of that process, because although there certainly are some similarities, there's also some massive differences. I was just wondering what about that was the hardest. Yeah, so the thing uh, in, in rugby, the two positions, I was playing back row before, moved, asked, asked to move to hooker, obviously similar in terms of what you do around the park, but the main difference is you have to 
pack down in the front row of the scrum uh, and to throw the ball on the line out skills, which, you know, hookers who have been playing that position for years still struggle with. So I knew it wasn't something I could do overnight. I reckon that the big, the hardest thing is, was going from playing every week to then not playing, like trying to, I had to really back myself that it was going to work because if it didn't work, I was, you know, I was probably going to be out of a, a job in the next couple of years. So um, I, I thought a lot about it and it wasn't a decision I took lightly, but ultimately it was the position I thought that if, if it did work, then, you know, I could I could achieve a lot of what I wanted to achieve. I was never hidden away from the fact that I wanted to play for Scotland. I knew that if I stayed at back row, could I play for Scotland? You know, maybe um, I might have got a couple of caps. Um, I felt I worked hard and I, I could have done it, but I didn't ever feel like I was going to, you know, be a consistent player. And the amount of talent there is in the back row now, like especially now looking back, you've got the young guys coming through, someone like Luke Crosby at Edinburgh. Um, these young guys, they're much, much better shape and much better players than I was back then. So, I, yeah, I did feel that maybe I could offer something different at Hooker and, and try and continue to play like a back row at Hooker. That that quite excited me that I wasn't just a, a move to, you know, just a lot of people have moved in the past because they've not been able to play. They've maybe not been big enough or quick enough to play in the back row. So they, they moved to front row to try and play pro rugby. I'd already done, you know, 50 caps for Edinburgh at back row. So I knew I could play at that level. So it kind of excited me. It's like, well, you know, what could I achieve if I could, if I could make this work, you know? And, and the goal was always to try and get as many caps for Scotland as possible. I always said I wanted to try and earn, you know, 30, 40, 50 caps for Scotland. Yeah, but now, like you said, at 37, which I'm really proud of. Um, I hope to add to that in the years to come. So glad it sort of worked out for me. But there were, were obviously tough times because it was, it was learning a whole new skill. And, um, and there were times I did, did question it, whether I thought it was the right decision. But ultimately, I just had to try and keep back and backing myself and, and give it everything I got, knowing that if I, if I look back, I could always say, oh, well, at least you went for it and you chased a, a dream that you wanted to, to try and get 50 caps for Scotland rather than, um, you know, stay in back row and always wonder what if. So Yeah, well, you touched it. It's certainly anyone looking in would say that it worked for you. I said 37 caps is a great achievement and hopefully many more. But also, as we touched on at the top of the interview, seven tries, which is the highest for a hooker for Scotland, and potentially one of the most famous tries will have been your charge down, which kick-started the comeback against England at Twickenham in the Six Nations in 2019. But of course, what is maybe the most impressive thing about that try was then the ability to outrun Owen Farrell and Johnny May, which not many hookers will have been able to do. I was just wondering what you were thinking when you were kind of charging away and you saw that you had Johnny May and Owen Farrell behind you, who most would have assumed might have had the advantage when it came to the, the foot race. Yeah, no, I think you weren't, you're not, the, I wouldn't take offence to that. I think you're right. I think they probably <laughs> did have the advantage. Um, it's funny, at that time, I remember, I remember very few things about that game. It was all a bit of a blur. I remember after conceding maybe our fourth try in the first half, walking to, you know, to do it. I think we were going to, just about to do another kickoff after conceding. And I remember looking at Gilco and we were just like, what is going on here? England were playing at such a high pace and they're just cutting us open at every every angle and we were just we just couldn't seem to get a foothold in a game. And I, I remember thinking like someone needs to try and do something. Yeah, I didn't think I was gonna end up scoring that try. One of our main things that day was just to try and get at Owen Farrell. It was our one of our, our tactics I remember that, that Matt Taylor, the defence coach, put in. And so I saw that he had the ball, I saw our numbers down and I, yeah, I just I tried to charge him down, didn't expect him to, to bounce up. And then I remember when I was when I was running, I just thought, I'm just going to run as hard as I can until I get tackled. 
And then I, it's funny. I've watched the try back since. And I, I sorry, I do swerve a wee bit. I don't really, really I don't know why I did that. It wasn't <laughs> intentional. Um, I think I probably just lost my balance actually and ended up with, um, Johnny. <laughs> it just worked out better. Johnny, Johnny may fell over and then uh, and then he sort of tripped up and went viral at the same time. So yeah. um, and then I really panicked because I thought, crikey, I'm going to have to run another twenty meters here. Um, but it was. It was awesome, and at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I just kind of thought, right, well, at least, you know, at least we're not going to get no. I did not think for one second what was about to happen in that game, but yeah, that was that was a pretty special game. All right, well, I have to say, watching it live on television, I thought the first thing that might have gone through your head is, you know, where, where can anyone give me some oxygen? Because you look absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you look absolutely ruined. I don't, yeah, <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think my contribution after that moment was much in that game. I, I think I got subbed at about fifty minutes. I, I was absolutely done. <laughs> Sixty minutes. That was five minutes too late. You kept looking at the bench, going, "You know, I'm not running eighty meters." Oh, yeah. um, no, I don't. I don't think I said. Considering I was. Uh, I was capped. I don't think I said much at half time. I was yeah. just trying to catch my breath. <laughs> um, just, just on that, Stuart, so obviously the last couple of years you, you have had opportunities and, and the chance to captain your country, which I can imagine is, is you know, there's no higher honour in sport, you know, including at the last World Cup, which, which any Scotland fans will know didn't, didn't go the way that, that people uh, and supporters and certainly the team will have wanted. But more on the captaincy side of things, under, under Gregor Townsend now, it's sort of, from an outside looking in, he sort of had four or five different captains over his tenure. You know, people like Greg Laidlaw, I think John Barkley, yourself, Stuart Hogg now has it. So in terms of someone who has had the captaincy and at times, and then it gets moved on, you know, what, what is that like? Because when you think of a captain in, in a team and, and it's, it's somebody think of an established player who might hold on to that for a long period of time, especially in, in, in rugby. Um, in terms of, of that captaincy changing around hands, how, how have you found that and, and the sort of, you know, any insight of what sort of that process has been like? Yeah, it's, it's quite, you know, hard to talk about because um, obviously the World Cup wasn't, uh, wasn't great for Scotland and obviously I, I started off that as captain and, and ended up not playing in the, or not starting the last game, um, which ultimately meant I wasn't going to be captain. And um, I think that's something you, you have to realise as captain, like you, you're not guaranteed to start especially in rugby and the competition we have in Scotland. And it's this, I think it's probably the reason that the captaincy has kind of chopped and changed a bit because, you know, you have to be playing well. And if you're not playing well, then someone someone behind you is playing well or, or they're going to be knocking on the coach's door asking to start. So ultimately, your first job as captain is, is to make sure you're playing well enough to, to start the games. And, and ultimately, I wasn't playing well enough to start in that, that last game against Japan. So, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's been tricky and it's... Uh, Captain Scotland is such a huge honour for me, and it's something I, I never thought I'd do. Uh, it's something I always like. When, you know, you'd ask me when I was growing up, we captain Scotland one day. Of course, I would have loved it, but um, there's a lot that goes alongside captaincy, and it's uh, it's, it's a massive honour, but it's also uh, you know it's, it's it's tough, and and doing it in a I found doing it in a team where I had so many other you know experienced guys around me, like you said, Barkley and, and Laidlaw. It was it was really good to know that they were there, and I had great support with them. So. I did find it like for me it probably wasn't as big a deal, you know, not being captain after that because I knew I had to, I just had to try and focus on playing well and try and get back playing and back enjoying it because ultimately when you're captain, you know, if there's other people out there of captain side, it's, it can be quite lonely and it can it can sometimes take away from the enjoyment of it. So I was very much focused this year coming back into Six Nations just to to try and enjoy it. 
and uh, I really did enjoy the Six Nations this year. I thought it was great. It was great that uh, Stuart Hogg took on the captaincy. I thought he did exceptionally well. Really, um, really proud of how he stepped up, and I thought his performances were, were great as well. Um, and it was great, sort of still being in that leadership group with Stuart and and some of the other guys. So it's been it's been good. And like I said, the main thing for me was just to try and enjoy it because I kind of, if I'm honest, when I was captain, I put more focus on being captain than actually enjoying what I was doing so uh, I guess at the end of the day it's a big learning experience isn't it so um, but I did enjoy enjoyed the uh, the Six Nations I really enjoyed the try I scored against France I'd, I'd never normally celebrate my tries probably to normally <laughs> too tired to celebrate <laughs> but I remember it was the, the try against France where they stole the light now but then we got the luck of the bounce and I managed to yeah. run it in and I knew that by like scoring that try I kind of knew we'd won the game I think that was about 65 minutes and we're going three scores ahead and I just sort of launched the ball into the crowd something I would never normally never normally do but it just it's all sort of I think it was just a build up of all that emotion and uh, over the last sort of six months of playing international rugby just sort of came out and knowing that I'd done like a really positive contribution there's a great photo of us all celebrating after that which is probably one of my favourite photos and actually knowing you've made a difference in the Scotland team is, is pretty special and there's nothing better than scoring at Murrayfield so yeah. Is wee Jimmy's nose in the crowd okay when you hoid the ball into his, and broke his nose? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, need to, you'll need to let me know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> was, you you didn't right. get a lawsuit after that or anything, did you? There wasn't no. a knock on, knock on the door saying, Stuart, we need you to come and speak to this kid. <laughs> no. Thank, thankfully not. No, thankfully not. Um, one last thing. Being an international rugby player, international sportsman or woman, is a stressful enough Thing to be doing the, the commitment the time commitment the sort of you know excellence it takes as you say the routine you put yourself through you know the, the things you potentially have to give up you know for, for most people that in itself is going to be you know enough but for you it's it's not and and it really fascinates me for, for, for our listeners out there who don't know this that uh, during all this time as a professional rugby player Stuart has also been putting in the hours and putting in the time to uh, his piloting license is that something that you've always wanted to do do Rambo is that something that as, as a you know a job you've always thought about after rugby is is life after rugby always something you've, you've thought about or is it something that sort of how did that process come about and, and what does it actually take in terms of balancing that rugby career as long as sort of working towards your piloting license yeah it's something I've, I've always wanted to do probably before I wanted to be a rugby player I wanted to be a pilot before I knew that that was a possibility playing professional rugby um, I was all sort of keen to, to go to uni and, and get a degree and then apply to the airlines and, and try and become a commercial pilot but then obviously rugby gave me another dream to work towards which just obviously is try and play for Scotland so the flying kind of went on the on the back burner I kind of forgot about it for a while just because I didn't think I'd have the time to learn how to fly and play professional rugby and it was only when I moved to Hooker actually that there was a real chance it wasn't going to work uh, and if it didn't work you know where where, where would I want to be in a couple of years and uh, it forced me to explore that, that avenue again of, of flying and I got put in touch with uh, a flying school called Tayside Aviation which are based in Dundee but they've also got a, a tiny airfield at Fife which is, is great to learn from so um, just sort of 20 minutes from my house managed to get up and over the bridge and get up for a flying lesson and I absolutely loved it and um, it was something that took me three years to do so it's a sort of 50 hour course and yeah so it took a while but it was quite good especially when I just moved to Hooker I wasn't playing a hell of a lot so I had a lot of weekends free and a lot of Friday evenings free and um, I would end up just spending my time up at the airfield and it really helped when I was going through the sort of tough times moving to Hooker when I was really struggling with my throwing or I, I couldn't get the scrummaging right or I was you know hurting myself or, or whatever 
quite good going, being able to go to the flying and have something I had total control over. You know, I just had to put the time in and put the hours in and I would get out of it, you know, this, this private pilot's license, which I, which I wanted for a long time. And yeah, it was, I think it was 2016, I passed my skills test. So I've had the license for coming up to four years now. It's been great. You know, I've logged over 100 hours. Uh, absolutely love it. Had some good trips, flew to, to Isla, I was probably flown there twice now, um, which is a brilliant flight, hour and 45 minutes. And uh, you fly, you know, it's an absolutely beautiful flight over Loch Lomond and then down down the coast into Isla. It's beautiful. Me and Tom Brown actually flew there the last time we went, I think it was last summer, we went to, to Isla, flew there and played the Macri Lynx, which is a, a wonderful golf course there. We, we've played and that, we, we can contest it. Yeah, that's a brilliant yeah, course. It's tough, but it was good. So we played that, had some lunch and flew home and got back in time for dinner, which was brilliant. And things like that really, um, you know, it's, it's what having your pilot's license is all about. So it's kind of, it was first and foremost, it was to give me something else to do alongside moving to Hooker. And uh, and now it's also allowed me to explore that possibility of doing it after rugby as well. Um, I'm really quite passionate now about wanting to get into the airlines uh, when I retire from rugby. You know, I thought long and hard about whether I want to become an instructor or or whatnot, because I didn't like the idea of, you know, a lot of people think of becoming a pilot, you assume it's uh, the goal is to do long haul, and, and, and with that comes time away from home, more hotels, you know, my, my career with rugby, I spent a lot of time in hotels and away from home, I didn't want that to be my next career as well, so I was kind of put off the commercial aviation for a while, but then I spoke to someone at Jet2, who are obviously a holiday airline, They their sort of specialty is sort of flying to Alicante and back in the same day, so there might be an opportunity to, to fly for an airline like that, where it's uh, kind of like an extended nine to five. So I still get the, the, you know, the experience and the thrill of flying and the, the flight deck of one of these big planes. Um, but also, you know, you're not having to, to spend loads of time away from family and friends. So yeah, I'm hoping to get into the airlines when rugby finishes, whenever that, that does happen. And um, we'll just have to, to wait and see. Well, we wish you all the best for that. That's that's fantastic. And I think there's definitely been a, you know, a shift in professional sport now. Um, you know, recognizing that the benefits of, of allowing people to get get away from the game uh, and actually, you know, explore other avenues, whether that's be, you know, just you know, take their mind off their their own sport or set themselves up for a career. So, you know, the fact that you you know took ownership that's that's really cool to hear. And we wish you all the best with that. Right. So every guest we're going to get on Stuart, and we're going to finish off with uh, uh, the exciting prospect of running the gauntlet okay so um put, put, put time to put you on the spot uh, and see if we can find out a little bit more about Stuart McAnally so we're going to give you 45 seconds okay I, are you are you ready for this are you ready to run the gauntlet okay how many questions is it uh, as many as we can get in in 45 seconds okay so, right. so you, you be tactical and, and take and, and take it a long time <laughs> to answer the questions if you want but uh, okay. we should see how we go okay so uh, Rory if you want to queue up the time and queue up the music there's no time to run the gauntlet. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Fish or chips or Sunday roast? Fish and chips. Family Guy or South Park? South Park. Are we alone in the universe? Yes. Is pineapple an okay pizza topping? Yes. Was there room for both Rose and Jack on the door in Titanic? Yes. Red or black? Red. Do ghosts exist? No. Best place to get a meal deal? Subway. Karaoke song? Rocket Man by Elton John. Uh, uh, bungee jumping or skydiving? Oh, never done a skydive, so I'll go skydiving. <laughs>
Oh, my heart was pumping. That was fun. <laughs> um, Subway, very controversial meal deal <laughs> establishment, I would like to say. Yeah, no, you're probably right. I don't know where that came from. I don't buy a lot of meal deals these days, but when I used to buy meal deals back in the day, it would always be a foot long drink and a cookie from Subway. So yeah. uh, no, I, I maybe do that's where that, that came from. Well, the backup question is, what was your foot long Subway? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I used to vary. I reckon if if I had the you know last last you know Subway of my life, I would go with a cheese steak with uh, the sort of Southwest sauce was always a, a big hit. There you go. So, don't worry. I'm, 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 sure, I'm, sure the, I'm sure the nutritionist from Edinburgh and, and uh, Scotland, if you listen to this, he said he doesn't do that anymore. So you don't. You know, yeah. You know, you know, good, good party politic line there. Very good, Stuart. Not your first Unless somewhere are listening, and then you know, <laughs> getting me on board, then I, then I'd happily get back into it. Well, we'll we'll see if we can sort a sponsorship from Subway in the near future. <laughs> and also, applause to Rocket Man. Great song. Great song. Very happy. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Okay. All right, Stuart. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you on and um, and hopefully as rugby returns um in the new future as and when that will be uh, we wish you all the best uh, and obviously uh, as you move into your piloting career afterwards um thanks for your time once again and and stay safe thanks Ali. thanks for always speak to you cheers. soon cheers well thanks very much to rambo there for some really fascinating insight to his his experience in rugby and, and out with uh out with the game i did a bit of a disservice there rory uh, i only credit him with seven tries international tries rather than eight so he's he's got one more time to the tally as he uh, is still the leading all-time hooker for for scotland and um, but really interesting to to hear about sort of the commitments you have to make uh to make yourself as successful as possible what fascinated me most of all was that it was his decision to change positions you know he he clearly something that he targeted rather than sort of being pushed that way by you know coaching staffs or, or whatever else within the system finally to finish the show our first ever uh, top three lists of uh, various sporting questions that that you no doubt will have had potentially with with friends and family around wherever you are and to start us off we thought we could start with a nice easy one rory our greatest sporting moments uh, it doesn't have to be anything to do with any of our particular teams or what have you, but just something that we've witnessed, which is uh, the greatest sporting moments that, that you've seen. So what would your uh, what would your top three be? I actually found this easier than I thought I would. I think with amazing sporting moments, there are just a few that stand out and you think can't be matched. And I certainly had two that straight away came to mind and I came up with the third pretty quickly. So in order... Mine would be in third place, the miracle at Medina, the Ryder Cup comeback from Team Europe on American soil. In second place, it would be the Cricket World Cup final from last year, from 2019, when England beat New Zealand in a super over. And then the very, very natural number one would be the infamous Aguero. Last day of the Premier League season, last kick of the game all but winning Man City their first ever Premier League. Going through them all, Miracle Medina was just one of those moments where, as we talked about last week on the podcast, where you just see like a moment or an instinct which sparks like something in the team. And that actually came the night before the big comeback with Ian Poulter making a charge on that evening, winning his game um, and kind of igniting this miracle comeback on the last day where it looked like Europe were down and out. And even on the last day, there was so much red on the leaderboard and it looked like Europe were just never going to overturn this massive deficit. And slowly, game by game on the singles, they crept back and they crept back. And eventually, I think it was Martin Clymer that won the game for them in this most 
unbelievable comeback and you're up until kind of one in the morning and i feel like staying up late for them these golf competitions makes them even more amazing and then number two the cricket world cup final i think obviously more recent in history but anyone who watched that it was just one of them unprecedented games that will never be repeated from ben stokes innings to getting caught on the boundary but trent bolt put his foot on the rope to the moment where the ball flew off his bat when he was trying not to get run out and he was given six and then even the controversy afterwards and maybe it should have been five, maybe it shouldn't have been six. And then to go to the super over and even in the super over to take it to the very last ball was just, un- it was one of them, it was it was literally what you would write in a movie script and that's what made it so fantastic. And talk about movie script ending, number one, that Aguero. And there's, there's not much more you can say about it. It's just it's just something that you'll never see again. From the seeing the man you play as celebrating on the pitch to then hearing, then seeing the first goal go in and thinking, surely not. And then just that moment, that second goal went in and that kind of pure elation that like erupted within the stadium. And then you see the images of Fergie and Rio Ferdinand and kind of suddenly getting the news through and just Wayne Rooney stopping in his tracks. Is it's? I, I think if you put it in a movie, you think, oh, that never happened. Come on. And that's why it was so amazing. Three outstanding choices there. In fact, so outstanding that that I eventually plumped on two of them as well. I, I find it a little bit harder than you. I found a little bit there were there was I found this, you know, sport what we love sport about is these sporting moments. And I think back to so many things that have just encapsulated me. And so originally what I did is I broke it down to sporting moments I, I'd sort of seen live as it happened. There was a couple that I kind of watched a little bit later with some knowledge of what happened I remove them. So, but what I'll do is, for the sake of for the sake of this, I'll 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 make some changes. So, what I had done is my top two were the same, uh, Aguero for everything you've just said. My second was was the Cricket World Cup 2009 final, uh, sorry 2019 final. And although I have to say, I I I felt New Zealand were hard done by in that. I think <laughs> just purely, you know, uh, uh, when I do play cricket, I, I'm a bowler first and foremost, and. Um, and wickets are a much harder thing to get in one-day cricket than than boundaries are. So the fact it went down to boundaries and not wickets, I think, was well, New Zealand were hard done by. But that's a debate for another time. <laughs> um, but my third one, I, I'm going to keep Aguero as number one because I think we both agree. You know, as you said, it, it just everything about it, the fact they're on the same points, uh, just the just the whole way it, it came into into being. Number two was the crew. I'll take that. My number three I'll also take out just so we got a bit of difference. But number three originally was, uh, and this was the first real magical sporting moment. And I hate talking about it because it does involve Manchester United on the right side <laughs> this time. Uh, as an Arsenal fan, that's always hard to talk about. But the two goals that Manchester United scored in the 1999 Champions League final against Bayern Munich uh, with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer scoring the winner. You know, you talk about staying up late. As a young kid staying up late, you know, past your bedtime and being able to watch how that finished. That was the first time it ever really sort of dawned on me how magical and how amazing sporting moments can be. Um, and and that was just in, in, incredible to see. But I'm going to take that out. Just I'll, t- I'll talk about the other two, which would have probably been in there in some capacity or would be in the top five. Uh, the first one, a number th- I'll put it as number three, was the 2015 Super Bowl where uh, the New England Patriots and the Sa- Seattle Seahawks were playing. And there was 23 seconds to go. Seattle had the ball on the two-yard line. Score a touchdown, win the game, win the Super Bowl. And uh, Russell Wilson was the quarterback, threw the the pass, and Malcolm Butler 
the defender for the New England Patriots, intercepted the ball out the hands of the wide receiver on the goal line with 20 seconds to go, which, you know, interceptions on the on the goal line in American football are so rare. Are so rare. And that to happen in that moment, and Malcolm Butler was his first year in the league, he was a rookie, is just, and the reaction you see, you know, Tom Brady has won so much, Bill Belichick, but the stunned look in their face, you know, just says they've seen everything and they hadn't seen that at that point. So so that will even be my number three. My number two was the Commonwealth Games in 2018 and, and the netball. England beating Australia, in Australia, with Australia being the favourites, to win the gold with the last shot to win by one point, having missed the shot and being fouled, so therefore got a penalty shot to then get that penalty shot just after the buzzer. I mean, you talk about scripts. You know, you think <laughs> if, if, if this was... If this was, you know, if you were doing a netball version of Coach Carter, you know, <laughs> right, okay, or, or whatever it might be, and then and you see the net rippling, and just added to the fact it was in Australia against the favourites on home soil, I mean, that that was incredible, and it, and a sport that isn't often you know publicised. And yeah. I'm a massive netball. I love netball. I think it's one of the most underrated sports around, and to see that happen was just incredible. So, so my top three um, will be. Uh, Super Bowl final 2015, the Commonwealth gold for England uh, in the netball in 2018. And then I agree with you, you can't look much farther past the Aguero goal. So I'll be really intrigued. We'll, we'll stick them up on Twitter and on Instagram. You know, I'm sure there's some moments we've missed out on. You'll tell us about them. Uh, but we'll see if you who, who came up with a better top three. Uh, and we look forward to, to hearing from you as well. That'll do us for this week for the Utility Players Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. And everyone stay safe.